at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teacher of the when teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. May God add a blessing to this word. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Carlos, for reading the scripture today. Thank you to everyone else who made today possible here at the church. What are you who came and took time out of your day and wanted to spend some time in fellowship? It's been a it's been a it's been a rough year. Um for some of us, maybe even some of you who are watching online, I know Shirley said she was going to be watching, so I just want to say, you know, as a whole church, we've been praying for you, and we love you, and we're, we're happy that you're, uh, you're doing better. Um, and I think, you, you know, everyone, everyone here agrees, and uh, Shirley's not the only one that's been going through a tough, tough moment, tough situations. Um, there are many of us who maybe have been going through things maybe unspoken things, maybe things that we don't necessarily physically see. But uh, spiritually, uh, we may be challenged. Financially, we may be challenged. Um, and I just want to say that what I've learned this year is that God has a really interesting way, an unexpected way of, of reaching out, of meeting certain needs of standing by our side whenever we are in pain or processing grief or processing fear or anxiety or depression or so many other things that we face day in and day out. And uh, if there's anything that I've been convinced of this year is that God is not necessarily confined by the walls of a church. Um, God is out in the neighborhood like Jesus was walking with us, visiting with us, knocking at our doors, the doors of our hearts, asking to have a meal with us, to sit down with us. And um, that's sort of where this sermon was birthed. Um, and uh, I just got to say, I, I do feel a special sense of, uh, <laughs> I used to tell my, my senior pastor, a special sense of like, nervousness <laughs> when it comes to speaking up, up front. But uh, there's also a very special sense of God's presence, I feel, um, when we gather together that seems to kind of work its way through whatever it is that we are experiencing today. So thank you, Riley, for reminding us that God's presence is always with us wherever we are gathered together in his name. Um, 
sometimes a prayer to ask God for his presence to be here with us is it's just a little bit mistaken. God is already here with us. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you again for this opportunity. Um, we pray specifically that, uh, that this message today may not be just empty words or just whatever I came up with. But Father, that your spirit may work in our hearts, in my heart, and in all of our hearts and our minds as we think about you and we talk and listen, um, as we consider your grace, which is the power of the gospel in you. Praise your name, in Jesus' name, amen. So I'm just going to reread what um, Carlos read just a little bit earlier. We're in Mark chapter 2. A few weeks, uh, we talked about the story of the paralytic man that was lowered through the roof of a house and um, by his friends. And Jesus sees him, and he first thing he does is he forgives his sins. Before anything else, before healing him, before allowing him to, to be a whole man, before restoring him, the first thing he does is says, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And this story comes at the heels of that story. Um, and it says in verse 13 of Mark chapter 2 that once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. And there was a large crowd uh, that came to him and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax collector's booth. Some other gospels will call him Matthew. And Jesus sees him sitting there and he says, follow me. And Mark says that Levi got up and he followed Jesus. Now, Levi is a tax collector. Mark doesn't give us very many details as a, as a gospel. He's very short and quick and to the point. But he, he makes it a point to state that Levi is a tax collector. Now, as you know, tax season is upon us, right? And uh, though I've heard they, they push the deadline for, you know, individual uh, filers, you know, towards, I think it's May 17th now. Um, I don't think any of us actually really like to pay taxes, right? It's not a very pleasant thing to do. It feels like you're losing money. Um, and, and it causes a bit of anxiety, right? Especially, let's say you run your own business and you have to do all of that stuff in addition. You know, it's, it's a, a totally different thing, right? But paying taxes in present day doesn't really compare to paying taxes in the ancient Roman world, okay? And we've all heard that tax collectors in Bible times were not liked at all, at all in, the, in Jesus' day. In fact, tax collectors were despised not only in Judea, but throughout the Roman Empire. You see, the Romans didn't really want to do the work of taxing people. They found it tedious and sort of a waste of their energy. They were better prepared to wage war or to control territories, but taxing people is it's kind of a messy process. 
And besides, they were they were already unliked by the people that they occupied, right? So the next best thing was to hire someone else to outsource the job. Um, and they would hire people who were native to the region. They spoke the common language of the people and were educated enough to be able to read and write. Not everyone was able to read and write in those days. It was it was a very rare skill to have, and so these people were rewarded for their loyalty. A tax collector was in a good spot economically. They had managed to get an education, which is something that was rare. Now, we don't know how Levi got to, to be a tax collector. We don't know what he did with the money that he made. Maybe he helped his family pay off debt. Maybe he bought his family a home. Maybe he bought them land. But regardless, regardless of any of that, tax collectors were thought of as greedy as someone who is willing to tax his own people, as someone who might use um, deception to tax more than what was required. And yet Levi and other tax collectors would be doing this legally. It was sort of built into the system. Tax collectors were also kind of socially in the gray area. Uh, they were not accepted by their own people and they were not fully Romans themselves. And this ambiguity worked for them in economic terms. They could make a lot of money, but it wasn't a really good thing in terms of fitting into Jewish society. Now, we could easily look at him and say, oh, it's Levi, that, that greedy guy over there, right? The greedy person over there. For the disciples and for many of, the, of, of his time, and even maybe perhaps for us as we're reading this, it's harder to look at ourselves and realize that we might have the seeds of what could become greed. Now, love is the money, but love of money is the root of all evil. And we've all heard that line, right? But did you know that money only has power because we give it power? And I've been thinking about this lately. You know, oftentimes we think of the love of money as evil. We point fingers at people other than ourselves. We think that we don't have that problem. I mean, we barely even have money to begin with, some of us, right? And the truth is that we all can, at times, allow money to control us, our decisions, our fear, our anxiety, our sense of helplessness, often comes from what we call a lack of money. And in reality, it comes from us giving money more power than it deserves over our lives. You see, money is a tool. It doesn't have a soul. It doesn't have a say. It allows us to buy and sell, but it is not a God. And I know we all agree on that, but sometimes our actions can say otherwise. And I want us to think about that because I think that Levi may have had a problem with money. The things it bought, the power he may have felt because of it. I mean, who doesn't want more money, you know? Helps us to get out of debt, to, to buy a house, to buy the sports car we've always thought of. In Nestor's case, the Harley Davidson, which is awesome. Money isn't evil in itself. Regardless, I think there comes a time when most people realize that money doesn't buy happiness. It doesn't buy the things that really matter in life. Money can't buy you love. Levi, I imagine, had been collecting taxes for some 
quite some time. I'm sure he felt he had begun to feel this. He had begun to feel stuck in his position. He likely wanted to leave his job at some point, but what else would he do? He probably didn't have many options. Even if he learned another trade, who would want to train such a man? Who would want anything to do with him? He was marked by his occupation. It had become his identity. Imagine the glaring looks as he walks through town, the judgment, the comments about him selling his soul to the Romans. And then Jesus comes along, right? Jesus comes along and things seem to always take a turn, an unexpected twist in the story. In the same town as the previous story with the paralytic man that was lowered through the roof, Levi is sitting at a tax booth. He's literally at work collecting taxes. And the disciples immediately, immediately, I imagine, they have that strange human sensation that we all have when we're, some, when we're around someone that we don't like. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. It's that weird sort of pause. It's like your breathing changes. It's, it's an internal reaction, like your mind is warning you about something. And Jesus walks right up to Levi as he's sitting at the tax booth. And he says just a few words, follow me. It's so short and straightforward. Mark does this all of the time in the gospel. He, he doesn't give us what we want sometimes. I want more details. I want to know what, what was said. What was the exchange? Why, what just follow me, Mark? Like how can you give me more here, right? But it just is what it is with Mark. He says that Jesus calls a tax collector to follow him. A tax collector, the very last person his disciples might have approved of. Especially that one disciple, Peter, right? The one who, who proudly later on tells some tax collectors that his master doesn't pay any taxes, right? The same man who was likely a zealot and would have loved the chance to get rid of a tax collector. I mean, something was bound to go down with these two under other circumstances. Now, the call to follow Jesus wasn't just to simply physically follow him, like just not just walk behind him. Disciples were meant to learn from their teachers so that they could later go on and do the same type of work. Teachers were highly respected. In fact, it would have been every family's goal to have their boys in those days grow up to be disciples and then to become rabbis or teachers themselves. Children were taught the Hebrew scriptures. They, were, they would memorize them. They would learn them like the backs of their hands. And rabbis, what they would call teachers, would then select only the best, the ones whom they thought not only knew the scriptures well enough, but, but also whom they thought would have what it took or would have what it takes to do the kind of work that that rabbi was doing. If you were to become a disciple, you would be selected as a young man, not an older man, not an adult. You see, it was an honor to become a disciple of a renowned rabbi. So, Levi, I'm sure he understands the call to follow Jesus as a call to discipleship. Something that all of Jesus' disciples were called to do. 
And yet, the majority of them were not really considered young by their standards. In fact, some of them had moved on from you know, any of such aspirations to become disciples. They had become uh, fishermen, some of them. They, they began practicing the family trade. It was the next best thing. It's a, such an honorable thing to do. And here is Jesus offering Levi the opportunity to have a most honorable type of position, albeit with Jesus, who was unlike any other rabbi. Jesus offered a man with a very dishonorable position, a tax collector, a position, a place as a disciple. It was something that carried a sense of honor. He invites him to join his disciples. Now, as I was reading this story, you know, a phrase stood stood out to me. And like I said, Mark doesn't give us much detail where we want it. So when he does give us details, we have to pay attention. Now, there must be a reason that he writes specific things. Mark chapter 2 in verse 14, Jesus asks Levi to follow him. And Mark writes, and Levi got up. Levi was called to follow Jesus, but he had to do one thing. He had to get up. See, I'm saying this is important because in the story prior to this, a paralyzed man is lowered through the roof on a mat to see Jesus. And two important things happen. Jesus first forgives the man in front of everyone. Something that causes a stir because only God can forgive sins. And he is then told by Jesus to get up and walk. Jesus, by the very act of asking Levi, a tax collector, a man who has a shameful profession in his society, by the very act of asking Levi to follow him, he is inherently forgiving him. It's not explicitly stated, but... But Jesus knows who Levi is. He just knows. And it's as if it doesn't matter to him. In fact, he doesn't even acknowledge it. He just says, follow me. And the man previously paralyzed by his occupation, by the shame, by the power of money, by the desire for things, got up and followed Jesus. And I think Levi knew in his heart, somewhere deep inside, that Jesus had forgiven him just like he had forgiven that paralytic. He likely had just heard about that happening. They were in the same town. This Jesus, he thought that God actually loved him despite what he was. Perhaps he had wondered if such a thing was even possible. Can God love someone like me? And here was Jesus walking toward him and point blank asks him, follow me. And in an instant, Levi gets up and follows him. He just looks at his co-workers and he says, I'm out. I'm done. I've got something better to do. And I wonder if they looked at him confused 
like worried. Maybe they try to reach out and, and ask him and maybe like have that conversation after he made a, a really drastic decision. But Levi has resolve. He gets up in the middle of his job and just decides to basically quit. Now, I've titled the sermon Sinner Dinner, mostly because it rhymes. And I don't think I'm really very good at titles, but it, it's called Sinner Dinner because Jesus goes on to have dinner that evening at Levi's house. Now, I can't imagine how excited and nervous Levi would have been. And he is so overwhelmed that he ends up inviting many just like himself. Mark says that many tax collectors and sinners were having dinner with Jesus and his disciples. There's something about Jesus, just as in the story of the paralytic man, where the paralytic man's friends run back to tell their friend about Jesus and, and do the work of carrying him to Jesus, there's an immediate reaction and an immediate fruit to faith. Levi is found at home with people much like himself, people he associated with in the very same day that he was called. Now, Mark says that many tax collectors and sinners were having dinner with Jesus and his disciples. Now, I'm sure you've heard it said, don't do anything good that looks bad, right? I grew up with that. My mom would always tell me that. Don't do anything that's good that appears to be bad. I don't think Jesus ever heard that. There he was, reclining at the table with the whole lot of them, tax collectors and sinners. Mark makes it very specific. People who had been branded by the rest as impure, immoral, deviant, greedy, untrustworthy. I don't know what today's equivalents might be, but I'm sure we all have certain identities that we think of in our heads. People who, by their very identity, feel either too ashamed or are shamed specifically because of what or who they are. Jesus has dinner with them. He doesn't even hesitate to have dinner with them. In fact, he appears completely at ease. He reclines at the table with them. And the Pharisees, oh, well, you know, they're, they're outraged. First of all, you know, they're thinking, what are they doing here? Right? And we might be thinking, what are the Pharisees doing there? But there they are, and they are outraged. And I imagine maybe one of the Pharisees turning to one of the disciples, asking, hey, you know, come over here. One of the disciples, kind of confused, saying, okay, you know, what's, what's up? And I'm sure the Pharisee asks them, you know, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors? And sinners. I imagine disciples thinking, "Oh well, um, you know, I don't, I don't really know. Let me uh, give me a moment. I'm, I'm going to go ask him." Imagine him running over to Jesus. Jesus, you know, he whispers in Jesus' ear, and Jesus 
listens to him. The disciple says, hey, uh, Jesus, some of those men over there, they, uh, they asked me why you eat with uh, tax collectors and sinners. Oh, and w- w- what did you say to them? Me? Oh, I, I, I didn't say anything, Jesus. I actually, you know, I actually don't know why we're eating with them, to be honest. Like, it, it kind of doesn't help your reputation, Jesus. And it's at that moment I imagine Jesus decides, it's time for me to stand up and speak up. And he says the, the famous line, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And now, as we're reading, we might be wondering, but aren't all of them sinners? Aren't all of us sinners? So who, who else would Jesus be calling if not all of them? But Jesus seems to be playing their game here, right? This game where we, where we begin to identify people as sinners and ourselves as righteous. The problem isn't that some are righteous and some are sinners. The problem is that one, the ones that call people sinners turn around themselves and call themselves righteous. Jesus says, I, I see how it is. And I'm not going to try to convince you otherwise. Basically, I'll play along with your little labeling game. I didn't come to call those who think they're righteous and better than those whom they call sinners. Apparently, it's, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Yet, it's still possible. However, it seems absolutely impossible for the self-righteous to do the same. The self-righteous cannot accept grace because they do not need it. The sinner knows they are lost without him. Jesus came to forgive and to offer God's grace. But the self-righteous cannot understand this. The sinner experiences restoration, affirmation that they are valued and loved because intrinsic value is in them because they are made in the image of God. But the self-righteous feels devalued when Jesus values people that they don't. They feel devalued when Jesus values sinners, when he sits and eats with them, when he feels comfortable enough to visit their homes. Why? Because the self-righteous derive their value from putting other people down. Why did Jesus not call these particular Pharisees to follow him? Because he knew they thought they were better than him. Isn't it sad that they missed out on the greatest gift of God simply because they chose to play social value games? They chose to push others down to feel better about themselves, to gain authority in their religious careers in the religious realm in their society but we don't do that do we 
we don't put others down, do we? Or devalue others by calling them sinners? We don't think we're better than those, those who don't come to church, right? We don't think that we're better than people who struggle with addiction and things that we identify specifically with them. Now remember, Jesus did not come to call those who think they're better than others. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. The tragedy is that we can go on being religious, doing all of the right things, trying to earn a good reputation, good enough for uh, leadership, good enough to be a pastor, and yet fail to experience grace. The thing is, you cannot give grace if you've never received it. And that is, at its core, the foundation of the kingdom of heaven. When someone confesses something they struggle with, do we immediately take the moral high ground? Is there all of a sudden a power dynamic that emerges? One where the rest of us hide behind a facade of righteousness? Or do we also, do we do as the scripture says, in James 5:16 where it says therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective it says confess your sins to each other and pray so that you may be healed the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective I'm reading this, I'm thinking, I'm sorry, what? what? What makes them righteous? The fact that they have confessed. Why confess to one another? It's another question. Well, because it prevents the settling in of self-righteous attitudes. So then the righteous are actually the sinners who realize their need for grace and confess either to God or to others in hopes of receiving grace for their shortcomings. The person who has missed the mark, who has not met the standard, who has in everyone else's eyes not been quote unquote good enough, they are the ones Jesus has dinner with. They are the ones that Jesus be friends. He doesn't even bother to acknowledge their identities the way that we designate it on them. He doesn't call them sinners. He doesn't even acknowledge that Levi's a tax collector. He just walks right up to him and he, he hangs out with them while the self-righteous sit on the corner and the edges judging and questioning God's character. Jesus eats with sinners because sinners accept him. I wonder if sinners would accept those now who are called by Christ's name. Recent statistics have shown us for the first time in American history that less than half of all our population attends church. 
and the church in America is shrinking. It is it, often our reaction to this is, well, wow, well, you know, the world is getting worse, and, and this is this is a result of our culture changing, and and we all know this is going to happen in the end, end times anyway. But why don't we take a look at ourselves first? Is it possible that the church is shrinking because we've forgotten all about grace? Is it possible that we haven't truly experienced the thing that God gave us? Is it possible that we also do not know why Jesus eats with sinners? Is it possible that we are also asking the question, why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? The challenge for us today is to take one close look at ourselves. Do we practice a religion of judgment or do we practice a religion of grace? The good news lives on whether we accept it or not. Jesus continues knocking at our door, asking to come in and sit down and have a meal with us. I don't think he's knocking at self-righteous doors because he knows they won't listen to him. And yet there is hope for everyone. I think the church would be in a different state if we practice what James says, to confess our sins to one another so that we might be healed of our self-righteousness, so that we can experience true grace. Confession is difficult but we must confess our shortcomings specifically. We must practice this in our private prayers to God, but we must also practice it with close believers in the gospel. A confession of sin must always be met with our own confession of sin so that we may stand righteously before God in prayer and healing might occur. The gospel is only difficult for the proud And I I am amongst the very proud, so I've got a lot to learn. But if I've learned anything, it's that the true power of the gospel lies in grace. It lies in the willingness of God to forgive, to love, and to embrace us even when we are at rock bottom. Your value does not come from not sinning. Your value does not come from being wealthy. Your value as a believer comes from Jesus himself who counted you worthy enough to have dinner with you. Regardless of who you are. Jesus taught his disciples that the most valuable, a very most valuable lesson that evening at Levi's house. If I didn't think you were good enough, I wouldn't have come to your house. That's a given. If I didn't think that we were on level ground, that, 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 that this was a good place for me to be, I would not have come to your house. I wouldn't have reclined at the table with you and I wouldn't have shared a meal. I wouldn't have shared food with you. I wouldn't have laughed with you. I wouldn't have cared for you. And if I didn't think you were valuable enough, I would not have taken you as my disciple. The good news is Jesus is calling sinners today. Jesus is calling failures today. 
Jesus is calling those who think they're not good enough, those who are frustrated, those left behind, those who are ashamed of who or what they are. He's calling the addicted, the immorals, the liars, the greedy, the poor, the anxious, depressed, the lonely, sick, those whom we consider sinners, those about to give up on their lives, those about to take their own lives, those who have anger issues. That is the good news. Jesus is calling the one who lives in secret shame. Come and hear. Come and see. God actually does indeed love you. God does actually care about you. God loves indeed. And it's true, most people didn't like Jesus because of that. So much so that they figured out a way to get rid of him. This was controversial, and I think it still is today. They had Jesus betrayed by one of his closest friends for a few pieces of silver. They tried him under cover of night. They bribed the jury, basically. They, they called for his execution. They declared him a criminal and nailed him to a cross. And yet it pleased God to raise him up again. It pleased God. God, God enjoyed the moment where he brought Jesus back from the dead because God said, Jesus loves sinners so much that the self-righteous killed him. I will raise him up again to prove that my grace is never defeated. My grace will not be stifled. It will not be muzzled. It will not be pushed down. My grace is sufficient for you. You see, grace brings life. And self-righteousness brings death. Which will we choose today? The gospel digs deep. Jesus challenges us. He is often not who we think he should be. It often is outrageous, the things that he does. The key takeaway is image management is a false gospel. The gospel begins when we realize we all need grace. And it does not end there because Jesus trains us to give grace in the same way that we receive it. And so as a church family, my challenge to you is, have you received grace? Are you struggling with pride? Has Jesus called you to follow him? And if he has, have you gotten up? Regardless of what other people think about you, regardless of what people might judge you for, that's all superficial. Jesus says, you are valuable because you are made in my image. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your grace. And your love and your good news that challenges us 
each and every day. I pray that your spirit may be with us as we go home, as we go through our day-to-day living, that you may find us at work, that we may respond to you in the same way that Levi did, without hesitation, without judgment, without self-judgment, without self-righteousness, ready to receive and give grace the very gift that you yourself gave through your son. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yes,